Hello and welcome to Murder on Her Mind. I'm Caitlin Malley and I'm the host of this podcast. I hope you're all having a wonderful Thursday. It is almost the weekend for you guys. It's technically my weekend right now. I am off tomorrow until Monday and I can't wait. Um, I'm going to go to a Christmas market on Sunday but uh, it's not like it was before where everyone can just go and it's a free-for-all there's like a limit of people who can go in and like a time slot and you have to buy tickets um so I'm pretty sure it'll be nice and safe I think it's like 15 people per time slot um so that'll be good um get all dressed up and go to that on Sunday and then Friday I like tomorrow I think I'm actually gonna decorate I'm pretty stoked about that um it'll be a pretty fun time I know it's November but uh I feel like after everything that's going on this year I just really want to decorate because it's nice and it's a happy thing to do and a positive thing to do and um it'll just feel right um but yeah I think it'll be I think it'll be fun and then I can put on some Christmas music while I'm doing it and stuff so then for the rest of the weekend I don't actually know what I'm planning on doing it's kind of like a, a mystery to me um probably laying low organizing or something um but uh yeah we're probably gonna watch we watched um that Borat movie the other night oh my dear god if you have not watched it yet it is so insane I can't even tell you how insane this movie is um and I've never seen the first one and to be honest I don't like that humor I don't find it funny um it's just it's like trying to be funny you know I like more like witty humor like you kind of have to get the joke um so yeah it, it wasn't like my favorite thing to watch but it was insane like I, I was asking Chris, I was like, surely these people have to be acting. There's no way like this is all real. Like absolutely no way this is all real. And he was like, Caitlin, there is people like that in this world. I was like, okay. I was like, whatever you say. So just been um just watched that. So if you haven't watched it yet, it's on Amazon Prime. It's probably the most insane thing I've ever seen. I don't know what you could call it. It's not really a documentary. Um but uh yeah it it was quite crazy and then last night chris's brother and his girlfriend so lucas and janessa they um flew in from Yellowknife, which is from like the northwest territories and they had like a five hour layover in calgary so we went to go meet them last night they, like wore masks and we went to get some dinner and it was really really nice actually and uh, to be honest with you i haven't i've only been out for dinner I think it's once and that was in the middle of summer when all our cases were like I think pretty much down to like zero or there was like two cases and then I went out on the island a few times when me and my boyfriend were out there but um this is like my second time actually going out for dinner in a restaurant in Calgary I think in the middle of COVID second or third time I literally in you know the eight months that this has been going on now i've only been out three times in calgary which i think is pretty good um unlike what i see most, most people doing but uh 
yeah, no, it was just so nice to be able to spend that time with them because we can't go up to see them because the Northwest Northwest Territories in Canada are, why can't I say that? Northwest Territories um, in Canada are very strict. And I think uh, Janessa, she's an x-ray tech, so she's like a frontline worker. She would say that they only had like two cases and that was due to travel. So um, they're, they're really doing quite well. So... Yeah, it was great to see them, and we dropped them off pretty late last night at the airport. Um, so I'm pretty tired today, to be honest with you. Um, and I got quite a busy day at work, so I'm kind of stoked about that. But I pretty think that's like everything that's going on right now in my personal life. Um, I'm still listening to the same podcast. If you have any recommendations, please let me know. Just listening to like the Armchair Expert, Cure for Chronic Pain. Um, my favorite murder of course but uh if you have any other ones that you'd like to recommend to me i would be so intrigued to hear them um but yeah i originally actually recorded this episode um last week but then i realized i didn't record an intro so i woke up this morning and i was about to post it and everything and i was like oh my god i don't have an intro so you're currently getting this intro from my bed so I'm sorry if I sound like I just woke up because I did just wake up. Um, but yeah, it's great that I just have all these things that I could just record in my bed <laughs> before I get up and head out the door. Um, yeah, it's been snowing here quite a bit too, so it's quite chilly. But uh, it's so nice. One of my coworkers she offered me a parking spot like right downtown, like um, where I work. So I don't have to walk for 20 minutes this morning. I can just roll into a park aid and get in the door and it'll be nice. Nice and relaxing. And I also like to add, there's Christmas music playing on the radio here in Calgary. And I am so incredibly happy about that. One day I was driving to work and I just didn't plug in my aux cord. I was trying to like concentrate on the road because it was quite snowy. And um, I just like started flipping through the radio stations. And then I was, if you're in Calgary, it's 95.9, I'm pretty sure. Um, they had Christmas music playing. So I was stoked. Just blasting the Christmas tunes. It literally just releases so much serotonin to my brain. I'm like the happiest person alive when I'm singing Christmas songs. Um, and so is my sister, actually. My sister is so funny. She'll go up for a bath and <laughs> she'll just start blasting out like I don't know like Adele or something and then at Christmas it's usually a Christmas song so um but anyways I guess I should just get to the point here of true crime and murder and all that fun and glory stuff so um I hope you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to rate review subscribe give me any recommendations I'd love to hear it um and I hope you're all having you're gonna have a wonderful weekend um and maybe you're prepping for christmas which i hope you are it's not it's no harm do it early this year who cares don't don't listen to what other people tell you if it makes you happy fucking do it put some fairy lights up and make it cozy in your house watch a christmas movie make make yourself happy make yourself some christmas music why not anyways um have a great day be safe and be happy enjoy happy listening Okay, I'm back after I said peace out. So today on episode 15 of Murder on Her Mind, we are going to be doing 
Dennis Andrew Nilsson. Now, he was known as the British Jeffrey Dahmer. And for many reasons, they had a very similar, um, I guess, I don't even know what you would call it. They have very similar similarities between like their crimes and their sexuality and their lifestyle and everything. It's it's just very similar to Jeffrey Dahmer. So uh, Jeffrey, or sorry, Jesus Christ, not Jeffrey. We're doing Dennis. Dennis Nilsson was born on the 23rd of November, 1945 in Faceborough, Scotland. Also known, he's he was also known as the Muswell Hill murderer and the kindly killer. So he was a British serial killer who lived in London. Nilsson killed at least 15 men and boys in a gruesome circumstances between 1978 and 1983 and was known to retain the corpses for sex acts. So I'm pretty sure he was a necrophiliac. That's the term. Um, he was eventually caught after his disposal of dismembered human entrails blocked the household drains. The drain cleaning company found the drains were congested with human flesh and contacted the police. Contacted the police immediately. Um, so the early life of Nelson. Um, he was born in Scotland to a Scottish mother and a Norwegian father. Um, his father was an alcoholic and his parents divorced when he was four years old. His mother remarried and sent her son to his grandparents, but a couple of, for a couple of years, he was sent back to his mother after that. Nielsen claimed his first traumatic event to shape his life came out when he was a small child when his beloved grandfather died. His strict Catholic mother insisted that he view the body before burial. So we call that a wake in Ireland. Um, it's probably not the same everywhere else in the world, but... Um, I remember my very first wake was for my best friend Jenny who was on the podcast two episodes back for her granddad's funeral that was the first wake I ever went to that I remember anyways I probably would have meant to more when I was younger but I actually don't remember this one I remember and I just remember staring at his lungs I was like is he breathing is he breathing is he actually dead is he actually dead okay he must be dead and they give you sandwiches and they give you tea and you know everyone's shaking their hands and there's quiet whispers and gentle laughs because no one actually wants to laugh because like there's a dead body in the room and then we go to my granny's wake well that was something else um so it was actually really sad so I was at work one day and my dad called me and you know he was like we actually might have to fly to London or to London tonight to get to Ireland I was like, oh, fuck, okay. So I le- I literally leave work, pack a bag, and we get to the airport and we get on a flight with British Airways. We arrive in London and um, we actually had called my Auntie Maria in the airport and we are like, oh, well, we call her Marie. Maria's fancy. Um, and she was like, yeah, Granny's still alive. You still have time, but the nun's here. You know, everyone's here. So, you know, fly to Ireland. And like the flight between um, London and Ireland um, it's only about 45 minutes but we couldn't get a flight that day so we'd have to go out the next day so we're like okay well, hopefully we can make it within those 24 hours so then we get to my grandma's house in London England we just walk in the door and there's a phone call from my auntie Marie saying that granny had just passed away so that was within like four hours or so that she had passed and it was very sad like I think my dad was very heartbroken that he was so close to being there and unfortunately he just missed it by you know a day um so anyways we get there and 
we get to my granny's house and literally all my cousins are there one of my cousins she was pregnant at the time she couldn't go um and it was just too close for her to be going on a plane and everything so it was it was just too dangerous and also um and then i had another cousin who was just in hospital at the time who couldn't make it either but the rest of us all 23 of us were there 23 cousins grandchildren and everyone's just hugging each other and then you go into the sitting room and my granny's cast is just wide open so that's the first part of the wake and then usually like the kids like so my dad and my mum, they actually stayed in granny's house that night with the open casket and they stood up to like god i think dad said it was like four or five o'clock in the morning just telling stories and i'll never forget this <laughs> So literally we're all standing in the room and we're all telling stories about granny and the next thing someone starts blasting Irish music like jigs and whatever and my cousin Miles bless his heart it was the cutest thing ever but also the saddest thing ever my cousin Megan I think start doing a jig around granny's open casket because she used to love us dancing and playing music for her like I played the fiddle I other cousins played the, the tin whistle other cousins have played uh the accordion and guitar and all of us love singing and we hate being asked on the spot but anyways um and my fucking cousins are just dancing around my granny's casket and all of us like cheering them on like yeah go on and we're all kind of crying at the same time we're like this is so sad and i we just couldn't believe this was happening and like you know we're kind of all sort of like giggling to ourselves like what the heck is going on so um moving on this is such a sidebar to the story oh my god then moving on to the next day and um you close up the casket and you reopen at the community hall and i believe we were there shaking hands for about six to seven hours she had over four thousand people come to her wake and what you do is you have your granny in the center of the hall and then the whole entire family so it starts off from the eldest child all the way down to like the youngest grandchild and um also their spouses will be there as well um they'll usually run around making tea and giving out like the whole community comes together there was probably about like 20 apple pies hundreds of ham and cheese sandwiches and chicken sandwiches and tuna sandwiches and egg salad sandwiches and little cakes and pies and hundreds of cups of tea because irish people just have to drink tea till it comes out of their fucking ears it was just crazy and it just really made me miss home and I was only there for five days but it was some of the most amazing time I got to spend with my um, family back home in Ireland and um, then you close the casket and you go into mask and you finally say goodbye and that was probably one of the most horrific experiences I've ever had to go through especially listening to like my uncles and aunties just wail over losing their mother and it was the last time that they would see her face and um, the next day is the funeral and of course then you go to the pub and you just basically get plastered and i remember these two american tourists came in and they were like oh my god like who's getting married who's getting married like you guys are all dressed up so nice and we're like oh no no like we just had our granny's funeral like we just buried her a few hours ago we're just celebrating her life and they're like oh my god oh my god okay all right okay goodbye and they just like closed the door they were like literally so taken back by us like there was people on like table i remember there was like someone dancing on the table um i was in the corner playing my fiddle everyone's screaming blasting tunes the drinks are flowing and it was just such a special experience to celebrate my amazing granny's life so 
I get where the strict Catholic mother is coming from. Because you know what? If you're that close to your grandparents, it is important. I think it's very important um, to celebrate their life. Um, I know that's exactly what I would want to happen if I ever died. I would just want it to be one massive fucking shindig where everyone just gets off their face drunk and dances and has a good old time. Um, But anyways, so he believes that was kind of like his calling to how he became this murderer is seeing his granddad's open casket whether this incident or his mother's and stepfather's lectures on the impurities of flesh helped shape him into what he has become no one really knows in 1961 nelson enlisted in the british army and became a cook in aden cyprus and berlin he left the army in 1972 and served briefly as a police officer from the mid 1970s, Nielsen worked as a civil servant in a job center. So, a little bit of background story that I remember hearing about Nielsen, um, because he was obviously gay, um, he went around and when he was a police officer, I remember at one stage he went up and he saw two men in the car making out with each other, like shift in their face, snogging, whatever you want to call, it, wherever part of the world you are, and. Um, and um he had to turn away and that was illegal at the time in the uk and that's when he had to return his like um badge in which a little part of me is like oh but no fuck you you're a fucking serial killer at the same time um he was involved in a series of superficial trans story relationships with men um though they did not associate himself with feelings profound isolation and loneliness like Jeffrey Dahmer, he sought somebody, quote, who wouldn't leave that is a corpse. So, yeah, he uh, enjoyed the old uh, little corpse fuck. Yes, yeah, sick bastard. Um, all his victims were students or homeless men whom he picked up at the bars and brought to his house either for sex or just for company. Nelson strangled and drowned his victims during the night, waking up with little memory of what he had done. He used his butchering skills learned in the army to help him dispose of the body. Nielsen had access to a large garden and was able to burn them. Sorry, burn many of the remains in a bonfire. In 1981, however, Nielsen moved to an upstairs flat. As his murders continued, he found out it was difficult to dispose of the remains and had a suitcase full of human organs stored in his wardrobe and plastic bags with human remains under the floorboards. Ugh, so gross. Neighbors had begun to notice the smell when he tried to dispose of the bodies by flushing them down the toilet. He blocked the sewerage of his house in Muswell Hill, 23 Cranley Gardens, North London. So I believe that's where my friend Millie lives. So her house is kind of like right behind where he lived. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the right address, um, which is so messed up. And like my mum even remembers like hearing all about this. It was really, really fucked up. Like in the 80s. Yeah, not fun. When a company was called um, to unblock the sewer system, they first found the drain to be packed with flesh-like substances. The drain inspector then called his supervisor to assess the situation. However, this was not to take place until the next day, by which the time the drain had been cleared. This aroused suspicion in the drain inspector and his supervisor, who immediately called the police. Upon closer upon closer ins- inspection, some small bones and what looked like chicken flesh were found in a pipe leading off from the drain. These were later discovered as human organs. Ugh. Nasty. 
Dennis Nilsson was arrested in 1983 on suspicion of multiple murders. He apologized to the police for not being able to tell them the exact number of people he had killed, which is so fucked up. He's like, yeah, so, I mean, you can arrest me, but, I mean, I think I killed maybe, like, I don't know, let's just say, like, 10 to 20 people. Like, no. Like, fuck, he literally lost count of how many people he had killed. So, so crazy. When his house was searched, they found three heads in a cupboard. And then they found 13 more bodies in Nils' former place of residence in Cricklerout. Um, oh, Melrose Avenue. Yeah, I know Melrose Avenue. Okay, that's cool. Which is actually so fucked up. But I would also have loved to have been those people to have been like rooting through his house. And then, wow, you found three heads. That would have been unreal as a job. Um, I know. So messed up to say, but really cool at the same time during the trial at old bailey nielsen was cold and distant and it seemed utterly unaffected by the fact that he had murdered 15 people he was sent to life in prison nielsen's minimum term was a set of 25 years by the trial judge but home secretary later imposed the whole life um sentencing which meant he would never be released but after the Home Secretary was stripped from its powers set to minimum terms of November 2002, Nilsson could be freed on life licenses in 2008 because of his original 25-year minimum sentence. In 1993, he was given permission to give a television interview from prison. So these are the murders and the attempted murders. So murder one, Nilsson's first murder took place on December 30th, 1978. Nilsson claimed to have met his first victim in a gay bar. Nilsson strangled him with a necktie until he was unconscious and then drowned him in a bucket of water. On January 12th, 2006, it was announced the victim had been identified as Stephen Dean Holmes, who was born on March 22nd, 1964 and was there for only 14 at the time how did you even get into a gay bar um holmes had been on his way home from a pop concert oh okay very sad still between the first and second murders nilsen attempted to murder a student from hong kong he had met in the west end although questioned by police the student decided not to prosecute and nilsen was released without charge jesus christ i'd be like get that motherfucker in jail so the second murder um, was on December 3rd, 1979. It was a Canadian shooting, Kenneth Ockenden. During their sexual intercourse, Nielsen strangled him. Ockenden was one of the few murder victims who was reported as a missing person. Number three, Martin Duffy was a 16-year-old homeless from Buckerinhead on 19... Birkenhead. In 1980, he accepted Nielsen's investigation to come over to his place invitation not investigation (laughs) he was strangled and subsequently drowned in the kitchen sink not funny not laughing very sad uh murder four billy sutherland was a male prostitute from scotland nilson could not remember how he murdered sutherland however as you do you just forget you know you know you do one you do two then you forget the rest um however it was later revealed the victim had been strangled by some someone using their bare hands so obviously it was him uh, murder five the fifth victim was from another male prostitute however this one never was identified all that is known that he was probably from the philippines or thailand which is makes me really sad really really sad uh Nielsen, Nielsen could recall every very little detail about this and the following two victims so this is uh, the sixth murder 
All that he could remember about number six was that he was a young Irish laborer that he had met at a bar. Uh, number seven, the seventh victim was Nielsen described as a starving hippie type he had found sleeping in a doorway in the char- in Charing Cross. Um, also couldn't remember how he murdered him. Um, Nielsen could recall nothing at all about the eighth victim. All he knows is that he did murder him and he just doesn't remember anything. Murder nine and ten, both were young Scottish men picked up in pubs in Soho. Um, murder 11 the 11th victim was a skinhead Nielsen picked up in Piccadilly Circus who had a tattoo around his neck saying quote cut here he had boasted to Nielsen how tough he was and how he liked to fight however once was drunk he proved no match for Nielsen who hung his naked torso in his bedroom for 24 hours before he was buried under the fucking floorboards at some point between the murders of 6 and 11 on November 10th, 1980, potential victim of Nielsen's woke up while being strangled and was able to fend off his attacker, although he recalled the police almost immediately after the attack. No action was taken. No fucking action was taken. As you do. Which is so amazing to me. You say you were attacked by a man and you were a male back in the 80s. You think police would have been all over that, especially for that man. Um, no action was taken by the officers who, it is reported, considered the incident to be a domestic disagreement between two homosexual lovers. On to murder 12. The 12th victim and the last before Nielsen moved home was a man called Malcolm Barlow. He was murdered on September 18th, 1981. Nielsen found him in a doorway not far from his home and took him in and called the ambulance for him. When Barlow was released the next day, he returned to Nielsen's home to thank him and was pleased to be invited in for a meal and a few drinks he was murdered later that night like what the hell what is going on here like i cannot i cannot this poor little man oh god what the fuck after moving to a new house in muswell hill in october 1981 nilsa met a student in a bar in Soho and invited him back to his new home the student awoke the next morning with little recollection of the previous evening's events and later went to his doctor because he had some bruising that appeared in his neck. The doctor revealed that it appeared to be a student had been strangled and invited him to go to the police. Um, however, afraid of his sexual orientation being disclosed, the student decided not to. Very sad. Following this attempted murder, Nelson met a drag queen in a pub in Camden. Camden is an amazing town, by the way. If you ever go to London and you haven't been to Camden, you got to go. Um, after passing out from a strangulation, he came to while Nelson was trying to drown him in a bathtub of cold water and managed to fight him off as attacker. You fucking get that motherfucker. Punch him in the dick and, you know, poke him in the eyeballs. Girl, get him. Um, I say that, but you never know what actually happens to you, what the fuck you're going to do. But um, that's what I hope he did. John Howlett was the first to be murdered in Nelson Muswell Hill home. In December 1981, Howlett was one of the few who was able to fight back however nelson had taken disliking to him and was determined that he shouldn't he should die there was a tremendous struggle in which at one point howlett even tried to strangle nelson back howlett eventually drowned however after having his head held underwater after five minutes howlett was the first body to be dismembered of the various body parts and either hidden around the house and flushed down the toilet um graham allen was Another homeless man who Nielsen in Shaftesbury Avenue, after, sorry, who met Nielsen in Shaftesbury Avenue after murdering him, 
Nielsen left Allen's body in the bath and sure how to dispose of it. After three days, he was dismembered like Nielsen's previous victim. On to the 15th murder. Nielsen... Nielsen... Nielsen's final victim was a drug addict called Stephen Sinclair. They met in Oxford Street and Oxford Street's a great street as well. I really like going shopping there. It's wonderful. Just a little positive anecdote to add to that. Um, And Sinclair managed to scrounge a hamburger off Nielsen. I would be doing that too. I love my burgers. Mm -mm -mm. Um, Off Nielsen, who then suggested they go back to his place. After dropping into an alcohol and heroin uh, fueled evening sinclair was strangled and his body dismembered it was sinclair's dismembered remains that were that drained what then ruined nielsen's drains and um, which then called for the alert of the police so moving on to nielsen's confession um nielsen began to spell out the details of his murders at once despite being uh, cautioned his formal questioning had begun on february 11th it had lasted over 30 hours spread throughout the week. Nielsen talked about his techniques and he helped police identify parts of the victims. He did not really require much prompting. The information flooded out as if it was a purge of consciences to get rid of every possible memory. Um, he made no um, faults and did not plead for compassion. He also exhibited no remorse. He claimed later that his professional training allowed him to feign calmness and officials take down the information. He told them what he would need for conviction, but nothing personal. Privately, he would be afraid and deeply disturbed by what he had done. Thanks to Nielsen, it was possible to find various pieces of bodies and assemble them to a person, as it did with Stephen Sinclair. His lower half had been in a bag in a bathroom, from there, he could figure out on his torso where his torso was, along with the rest. Uh, with the definite identity, they were able to charge Nielsen and to hold him to pe- pending further investigation. Um, Nielsen, also accompanied by police in 1955 Melrose Avenue, and pointed out where he had buried things and made bonfires. Buried things. Why the hell did I put that? <laughs> what the heck? Um so you know it's clearly he just was just verbal diarrhea he just kind of um just went for it really so a lawyer was now appointed to nielsen's name roland t moss who listened with police and nielsen's detailed confession he was satisfied that nielsen understood what was happening when the police officer invest- insisted that Nielsen was a predator with a malicious intent, Nielsen responded, quote, I seek company first, and I hope everything will be all right, end quote. Later, he wrote a gruesome memoir for a young writer, Brian Masters, who turned Nielsen's ramblings into a book. A master says, quote, Nielsen is the first murderer to present... Um, an expert archive, archive uh, measuring his own introspection. His prison journals are therefore unique document in history of criminal homicide. Quote, end quote. Um, after the confession, Nelson was removed from Brixton Prison to await his trial. He was troubled by the reaction of some press and immediately followed his arrest. No one wants to believe ever that I am just an ordinary man, he mused come to an extraordinary and overwhelming conclusion 
While awaiting his, his trial, Nielsen decided to dispense his legal aid, Ronald Moss, but then re, uh, reinstated him. Nearing the trial date, he fired him and hired Ralph Hames, the lawyer of a prisoner with whom he had fell in love with, David Martin. Hames decided to go for a diminished responsibility, defence and citing a mental abnormality in Nielsen. His defence counsel was Ivan Lawrence asking for a charge of manslaughter. Nielsen ex- um, examined the crime, seen photos and felt ill over the atrocious acts against others. He warned off his victims' families could ever forgive him. He wrote over 50 notebooks and memories assist to prosecution and drew a series of sad sketches um, showing what had come to some of his victims. One of Nielsen's sad sketches... On the eve of his trial, he wrote, quote, I have judged myself harshly than a court ever could. End quote. Nielsen had, charged, Nielsen had been charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. Alan Green was the prosecutor. He maintained Nielsen had killed in full awareness of what he was doing and should be found guilty of murder. His principal evidence was Nielsen's lengthy statement to the police while the defense relied on psychiatric analysis. The trial began on October 24th, 1983, and the charges were read that Nielsen pleaded not guilty to each one. Like, what the hell? Um, Green described the events as a morn- uh, the, of the morning of Nielsen's arrest, but did not force the jury in to look at the photos of the grisly remains. He also mentioned that there was another count of murder and attempted murder, but these had been determined to a late, too late to include in the original incident. Um, those who testified against Nielsen were Paul Nobbs, Douglas Stewart, and Carl Stroter. Nielsen attempted to undermine their credibility by helping a lawyer point out the problems with some of their statements. He said that Stewart had stayed for another drink after the alleged attack, which Stewart could not explain. Um, and the defense counsel managed to get him to admit that he had sold his story to the media with embellishments. Nobbs admitted to the sexual encounter with Nielsen and said that he ap- appi- um, appeared to be quite friendly throughout the evening. Stroter, shy and quiet, terrified the proceedings, also said that Nielsen had been a slitutious, sorry, I can't say that word, <laughs> unfriendly. Nevertheless, his chilling account had a damaging effect on the defence. Nielsen's interview with the police were read by... Um, Sorry, my God, why am I blanking? Uh, we're read with a verb- verbatim, taking four hours. The evidence presented in court included the cooking pot and the cutting board used to dissent, dissect the victims and set knives that had belonged to Martin Duffy. The defense mis- witness, Mr. James McKeith, discussed the various aspects of unspecified personality disorder from which he believed Nielsen suffered. He then described how Nielsen had had trouble expressing his feelings and had always fled from relationships that had gone wrong, as you do. Um, the second psychiatrist, Dr. Patrick Galloway, diagnosed Nielsen with borderline false self as if procedo normal narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> what a fucking disorder. He settled for false self syndrome which meant that Nielsen had occasionally outbreaks of schizoid disturbances that managed most of the sorry that he managed most of the time and kept at bay such as a person of most likely to this 
disintegrate under the circumstances of social isolation. And Everett Nielsen was not guilty of, quote, malice afterthought. Even the judge questioned Galway's obtuse medical jargon and testimony that affected, sorry, to the effect of being over the jury's heads. Um, A rebuttal psychiatrist was called, Dr. Paul Bowden, who had spent 14 hours with Nielsen, much more than those doctors in defense. He found no evidence for more of, for much more testimony put forth the other psychiatrist and thought that Nielsen was manipulative. He did see that Nielsen was a unique case with a mental abnormality, but not a mental disorder. His explanations of the differences were not very clear. During the summing up in which the case was reduced in the basic elements, the judge instructed the jury a mind can be evil without being abnormal, thereby dispensing with all the psychiatric jargon. Psychiatric jargon. The jury retired on Thursday, November 3rd, following the day at 11.25 a.m. The judge said that he would be accepting the majority count since there are two dissenters on every issue except the attempted murder of Nobbs at at 4.25, they delivered the verdict guilty on all counts. The judge sentenced Dennis Andrew Nelson to life in prison, not eligible for parole for 25 years. Nelson was almost 38 years old when that sentence came about. And that is the story of basically the British Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, It's quite an intense story, quite a mouthful, but I just can't believe that and the fact that he couldn't remember like all his murders is just so insane to me and then he just kept blurting out everyone so I hope you enjoyed this episode um please don't forget to rate review subscribe um I'm loving all the feedback so I really appreciate it and please don't be afraid to like tell me off if I've said something wrong I want to know I want to correct myself so anyways have a beautiful weekend um stay warm stay safe Please, guys, let's just try our best to keep everyone safe and get this fucking motherfucking coronavirus out the window. Um, enjoy and happy listening. Bye-bye.